we're going to, uh, we're going to spend today uh, looking at something very dangerous. We're going to spend today looking at something very dangerous. I want to show you how dangerous it is uh, by quoting a little bit of the, uh, the New Testament to us uh, from 1 Peter chapter 5. Uh, in it we read this, In the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. All of you, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another, because God opposes the proud, but favors, but shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Now, there's beautiful assurance there, wonderful assurance. Uh, but there's something very dangerous. It says that God opposes the proud. Today we're dealing with things that would make us God's enemy. And I'm going to pray that we might not finish the day that way. So will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you that we can indeed cast our cares and anxieties on you. I pray now that by your Holy Spirit you would use this word and this opportunity now to change our hearts. Father, save us from pride and arrogance and replace it with humility, we ask for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, as I say pride, uh, you may have uh, the idea that anything about pride is wrong. So uh, I had the kids, school kids here on, uh, on Friday and um, I, we literally had 300 people in the building. It was absolutely packed. And I did a talk similar to this on that day. And to help the kids understand the difference between good and bad pride, I put these pictures up so you can indulge me for a second. Uh, so here's uh, this lovely lady, we'll call her, let's call her Jan, and, uh, and she has a cat in her hand. Isn't that wonderful? And the cat has won a prize of some kind. Uh, and I think she's thinking to herself, my cat is the best, I love my cat, I love her, right? Wonderful. Um, she's very proud of her cat. Uh, does God oppose people who love their cats? No. Uh, sorry, he should. Okay, I'm very, very... <laughs> I've inadvertently stumbled into a dog versus cat thing, and that wasn't what I was intending, so I apologise. But but let's say that the I take pride in, say, my church, I love the suburb, that's okay. Okay, So that sort of I'm proud of, uh, something else beyond us is fine. Uh, There's a different way that this word can be used, and uh, it's this uh, this kind of thing here, isn't it? Uh, It's... It's, I am the best, uh, I love me. And the implication of this sort of pride is not just that I'm lifting myself up, but I'm implicitly and sometimes explicitly putting you down. My pride is over the top of you. It's stepping on your head. Do you see the difference? So this pride, I'm pleased to tell you today, is the one that we need to be wary of. This is the one, that heart that lifts self up over others, that's the one that God opposes. And that's the one today we're going to see is deadly dangerous. Well, let's, uh, let's dive in. Today, we've been, we've been working through a series called Meeting God in the Old Testament, and we've met him in all sorts of different ways. We're thinking, what question could we ask God? Well, I think we should ask, so how can we please you, God? What is it that we could do that would please you? And we're going to look at that through the lens of Daniel chapter 4 today. Where's Daniel in the narrative of the Old Testament? Well, it's the same place Ezekiel was last week, actually. Uh, So if you come in here a little bit closer, uh, where after God has given them the promised land, that's the uh, the green grass, God has given his nation kings, that's the crown, and his kings have not been faithful to him. 
And God has thrust his people out of the promised land, hence the broken down buildings, into exile. So the book of Daniel is written in this time when God's people are out of the promised land. Whereabouts are they? Well, if we zoom in on our map into the Middle East, uh, here's Jerusalem where they should be. Where are they living at the moment? Well, Daniel and co. were in Babylon up the top of modern-day Iraq, far from the place that they should be. They are not God's people in God's place at the moment, and they haven't been living under God's rule. So that brings us to Nebuchadnezzar, who's the king of Babylon and has all of these Israelites underneath him and in particular has some fine young Israelite men who he's trained up as part of his uh, entourage who advise him. And uh, if you're looking for a good read, Daniel's a cracking read and uh, you can see how, what it looks like to live uh, faithfully um, in a place where there are lots of other gods and that's certainly what Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego do. So what does Nebuchadnezzar see? Well, let's, if you can open your Bibles up, Daniel 4 is where we're going to camp out today. Uh, so if you can open them up, that would be great. Uh, we're going to look at uh, these first, uh, first opening verses to see what it was that the king saw. Now, it's an extraordinary chapter. Did you notice that we have in the Bible the words of a foreign king? Just worth noting that, isn't it? God's recorded for us the king of Babylon, who I'm sure had other gods. His words are in here in our Holy Bible. Extraordinary in its own right. So uh, verse 1 opens, King Nebuchadnezzar, to the nations and peoples of every language who live in all the earth. Now, you can say this guy's got tickets on himself, but it's probably a reflection on the fact that this empire was the biggest empire of that time. So when he writes as a king and sends it out, well, he writes to the peoples of every language who live in all the earth. You see, it's a big empire that he's addressing. May you prosper greatly. It's almost uh, this. No, anyone? No. No, very good. Okay, very good. Uh, It is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. Unlike mine, perhaps, he's thinking. His dominion endures from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. What sounds pretty good. He's living a good life. Massive empire. He's contented and he's prosperous. He's also not worshipping God at this point. What happens to him? Have a look at the very next line. Verse 5. I had a dream that made me afraid. God disturbed him. Just like he disturbed Pharaoh, he crashed into the contentment of this godless man and brought him something that was truly terrifying. What was the vision? Well, if we look at uh, verse 13, in the visions I saw while lying in bed, I looked and there before me was a holy one, a messenger coming down from heaven. He probably anticipated that this would be a good dream, I assume. Didn't turn out that way. He called in a loud voice, verse 14, Cut down the tree and trim off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from under it and the the birds from its branches. But let the stump and its roots, bound with iron and bronze, remain in the ground, in the grass of the field. And then we get this bit that just gets repeated again and again. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven and let him live with the animals among the plants of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man and let him be given the mind of an animal till seven times pass for him. 
So what's the picture? Well, the picture is a gigantic tree, a tree that protects and provides for the whole world, and then there's a declaration that comes that says a warning. The warning is you will be thrust from your people, point one. You'll be given the mind of an animal, point two, and you'll be drenched with the dew of heaven. I guess it means you won't live in a house. You're going to be out in the field somewhere. Until some sort of unusual length of time called seven times passed for you. Now, is it seven years, seven days, seven weeks? I don't know. Seven times will pass for him. So the thing that he sees is a warning, a declaration that the big tree is in trouble. Now, he has uh, Daniel called up, and Daniel is to, uh, to provide the answer. Earlier in the book of Daniel, we've seen the king say, I'm not even going to tell you what the dream is, and you must interpret it or you'll die. That kind of caused a little bit of consternation. Daniel saved the king before. This time, the king's far more gracious and tells him the dream, which is very generous. Uh, let's have a look at verses 19 to 22 and see how this uh, unfolds. Then Daniel, also called Belshazzar, was greatly perplexed for a time, and his thoughts terrified him. What am I doing here again? I'm sure he was thinking. So the king said, Belshazzar, do not let the dream or its meaning alarm you. Okay, king, all right, I won't do that. Uh, Belshazzar answered, my lord, if only this dream applied to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries. The tree which you saw, which grew large and strong, with its top touching the sky, visible to the whole earth, with beautiful leaves and abundant fruit, providing food for all, giving shelter to the wild animals, and having nesting places in it, branches for the birds. Your majesty, you are that tree. You are the tree. It's you. Now, this reminds me of uh, Nathan and King David. Do you remember this? After King David sinned? He told a story. No, you don't know the one? Nathan told a story to the king. He said, imagine there was a person who had a lamb. And anyway, it gets to the punchline. And David's furious about this story that the prophet said. And he said, you are that man. Bang. Here's Daniel saying to the king of a foreign land, you are the tree. You are the tree. And you're in trouble Because, have a look at verse 24. This is the interpretation, your majesty. And this is the decree the Most High has issued against the Lord, my Lord, the King. You'll be driven from your people and you'll live with the wild animals. You'll eat grass like the ox. You'll be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass by for you. Why? Have a look at this verse very closely. Until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all the kingdoms of the earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. The command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you. When? When you acknowledge that heaven rules. So what happens is Daniel's rolled out and he repeats the warning to Nebuchadnezzar. He says, Nebuchadnezzar, you're in big trouble. This is about you. It's about your kingdom. And the punishment you've heard, it's going to come. Well, The king listened, and I assume he went about his business. Nebuchadnezzar did pretty well. Uh, You can see uh, this is a reconstruction of his city. Uh, The biggest, most prosperous city of his age. Uh, Even today, I'm going to guess, every one of you have heard of the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. Is that right? 
If you haven't, you have now. Is that right, Russ? Yeah, that's good. Uh, The Hanging Gardens of Babylon, one of the wonders of the world, we know about two and a half thousand years later. It's got to have been pretty impressive, doesn't it? He made that. This is our king. He grew even more prosperous. And this gate that I talked about last week, do you remember? This incredible gate into the city of Babylon. This was what he made. And so he did really well for about uh, 12 months. He did really well for about 12 months. And then something terrible happened. Have a look with me at verse 28 in chapter 4. All this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. 12 months later, verse 29, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, now you can think why he said this, is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? Fair enough. I've just made the greatest city that the world up to this time has ever seen. You want to rejoice? May as well. It's your work. Well done, bud. I'm I'm proud of it. Well, have a look what happens in verse 31. Even as the words were on his lips, a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You'll be driven away from the people and you will live with wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all the kingdoms of the earth and he gives them to anyone he wishes. Immediately, what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from the people and ate grass like the ox. His body was drenched with dew from heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. What's the point? Here's a man who kept his arrogance in some way in check. I I imagine potentially out of fear for his dream. But one day it just got too much for him and it burst out of him. Look what I've done. I'm magnificent. And it says, as the words were on his lips, he was driven away, his mind was changed, and he was drenched with the dew from heaven. The judgment that came was immediate. Incidentally, where did the voice come from? Just tell me. Came from heaven. Is there an authority bigger than Kim Nebuchadnezzar? I assume he's standing on the top of his ziggurat thing, right? Looking out over his whole kingdom. He's on the highest structure that exists. Do you get this? And he's surveying it and he's proud and he's standing there rejoicing in himself. And then a voice comes from where? Above him. Do you see that? And says to him, you're in big trouble. These words are going to be applied to you right now. It isn't the end of the story, though, magnificently. Have a look at verse 34 and see what happened. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward where? Heaven. And my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. How high is he? You see that? The Most High. I praised the Most High. I honoured and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. I think the most magnificent part of this reading here is, then I raised my eyes. Then I raised my eyes. I want you to think with me for a second about eyes and eye lines. Let's draw a line through these eyes here. 
I want to talk to you about the arrogant. And I want to talk to you about those who today might feel worthless. There's two potential places we can be. The arrogant and those who feel worthless. For the arrogant, they spend all of their time looking down. They're on the highest point. They're looking down from the the lofty place that they've installed themselves in on everyone else. They put people down because that's the only direction they can see. You down further lifts me up higher. The arrogant look down on those that they are trampling upon. For the worthless, those who are here today feeling worthless, you look down too, but it's not, it's not because you're trampling on others. It's because you don't feel worthy of lifting your eyes to anyone. You keep your eyes down because when you lift them up, you get pushed down again. The arrogant look down to step on heads. The worthless look down because they can't raise their eyes without being oppressed again. I want to put another line in here. I want to put a line in. I want to install God. Where is he? Up high. There's two ways that the arrogant and the worthless need to react. And both of them are about raising their eyes. For those who are feeling worthless today, I want you to know you're of inestimable value to God. You matter. He sent his son to die for you. He cares for you. It says in that reading from 1 Peter, cast your cares and anxieties on him because he cares for you. He loves you and cares for you. I want to encourage you to lift your eyes up, not to see another oppressor, but to look beyond them to the one who is over them, who tells you that you are of worth. Lift your eyes beyond the arrogant to the one who is enthroned over all, who says he loves you. He loves you. Whatever the terrible and destructive words that get spoken to you are in your workplace, at home, by your friends or family, look beyond them. Lift your eyes up higher to the God who cares for you, who cherishes you, who values you, who made you. Lift your eyes. To the arrogant, you need to lift your eyes too because there is one greater than you. And you are no match for him. Those of you who were here last week, as we met that incredible vision of God in Ezekiel, will remember how terrifyingly great and awesome God is. And anyone who would stand before him and reckon that where appears is utterly wrong, one day you will meet the living God and you will not be a peer to him. Lift your eyes and look to God. So how will we live to please God? I want to suggest some lines of application. Uh, I want to get really practical and say, this lifting of our eyes will involve doing some things. Number one, we need to remember that there is a judge. We need to remember that there is a judge. One who watches. Again, we take it for granted that God knows Nebuchadnezzar's name, don't we? But the voice from heaven said, King Nebuchadnezzar. God knows him by name, knows his position, and calls him out. The living God knows you as well. Remember, there is a judge. This is what was declared in, uh, in 32. Seven times will pass by for you until what? Until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign. That's king, ruler, highest authority 
over all the kings of the kingdoms of the earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. He rules everyone over all the kingdoms of the earth. Even, yes, even in Babylon, this God of Israel rules. If we want to get to a little bit more practical, have a look at the New Testament. It comes up this way in Colossians. It says, Masters, provide your slaves what is right and fair. Why? Well, because there's industrial relations legislation in Australia that says that you should do that. No. Provide for your slaves what is right and fair because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Whatever godlike power your company invests you with, it is nothing. There is one who rules over you, unopposed. He is the living God. And you must do what is right and fair because you have a master in heaven. Remember that there is a judge higher than you. Point two, seek his mercy while it may be found. Uh, Now, uh, I just like that because it's a beautiful picture of an animal uh, living in the grass of the field. But I think the description was pretty wild, wasn't it? What were his fingers like? The claws of an eagle and his hair grew like the feathers... I mean, it was, it was a crazy period for him, whatever those seven times were. But here's the thing. King Nebuchadnezzar was given time, wasn't he? Go into the field. Be eagle hair boy for a while until you figure it out. And when you figure it out, guess what will happen? Everything will be restored. Do you, do you see that? So God was incredibly gracious to Nebuchadnezzar, wasn't he, really? Very gracious, I think, to him. It says, uh, it says here, at the same time, my sanity was restored. My honor and splendor returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven because he does what is right and all his ways are just. Nebuchadnezzar was given an extraordinary mercy. He was told in advance, do this or this will happen. If that happens, what you need to do is respond appropriately. For you and I, that time is now. Everyone check your fingernails. Have a haircut. See, the thing is, Nebuchadnezzar was given time. He was given a chance to think until his mind was restored. He lifted his eyes and then sanity came. The Bible says that we're all destined to die once and after that to face the judgment. Do you know on that day, you won't get a second chance. You'll see it. It'll be totally clear who the king is, but you won't be able to change your mind. How will we get there to changing our mind? I think we need to choose one of two paths to humility. Now, this is where it gets a bit heavy, I think. Uh, When I was growing up, I had some opportunities come my way and I was wrestling with pride and I found this verse, uh, this verse in the Bible here, um, Daniel chapter 4 verse 37 and says, those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. And I think God set before me and I think he sets before you two paths to humility, two paths. Nebuchadnezzar says, I exalt and praise and glorify God And he says, all who walk in pride is able to humble. Now, you might think to yourself today, I don't need to be humble. I'm doing pretty well. Bad, bad thought to think at this point, by the way. That's pretty proud, isn't it? 
but he's able to humble everyone. Those who walk in pride, he's able to humble. What are the two choices? Are you ready? Choice number one. How will God humble the proud? Well, option number one, you stay proud and he will bring you down. He is able to humble you. King Nebuchadnezzar lost his his whole entourage. He lost his kingdom. He lost his mind. He ended in a field eating grass. The greatest man in the world at that time. Now, I've got Tiger Woods up there. Uh, We could substitute any number of sporting fans. But guess what? There are far more private humiliations, aren't there? Ones that don't end up on the news, in Twitter, and on our 24-hour cycle. There are far more private humiliations. And do not for a moment believe that you in your strength and whatever wonderful position you're in right now can't be humbled by the living God. If you won't bow the knee, he'll make you. Option two, do you want to hear option two? It's much better. Humility. This is the one where we say, I will willingly bow the knee before God. Not that he will force me to my knees, but I will willingly release my pride and fall on my knees before the living God. Those who walk in pride, he's able to humble. One way or the other, you're going to end up on your knees. The choice is yours. Humiliation or humility. One of them is proactively realizing who the greatest God is, and the other one is reactively being overcome by the greatest God. Heed the call to repentance. Heed the call to repentance. Have a listen to what Daniel said to the king. Have a look with me at verse 27. So he's just laid out, uh, this is what's going to happen, you know, feathers, birds, uh, the, uh, the whole thing. And then he says in verse 27, Therefore, your majesty, be pleased to accept my advice. Isn't that daring of him? Look, I'm done. I've just told you what the interpretation is. I'm out of of here. I don't want to have anything to do with this. But he actually dares to add something to the king. Incidentally, the reason he's a great advisor, yeah? He puts himself second here. Just great example of leadership here. He puts himself in a dangerous position out of service for the king. Therefore, your majesty, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that then your prosperity will continue. Isn't that brilliant? King, just quietly between the two of us, you need to repent. You need to turn away from your sins or you're going for a fall. Have a listen to Jesus in the New Testament. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Today, If we're standing with unbowed knees, you need to repent. You need to turn away from your wickedness and wrongdoing and say, I give up. I'm endangering myself before the awesome living God. Point five. A number of you here will have bowed the knee and it's wonderful. I want you to note that the king takes pleasure have a, have a look at this, Daniel 4, verses 2 to 3. He says, It is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. How great 
are his signs, how mighty his wonders. Here's a pagan king showing us how it should be done, okay? What does he say? It's my pleasure to declare how great God is, not my sweaty duty. Do you see this? Are you with me? I delight in telling you how good God is. Can I encourage you this morning, if you've bowed the knee already, take pleasure in telling how great our God is. I want to finish with this. Uh, in Philippians 2, Paul is writing to a church in, uh, in Philippi, and he points us to Jesus. Who would have thought the greatest example of humility would be the one who is the greatest one? Have a listen to these words as we finish. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. A brutal, humiliating, destructive event. Verse 9, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You want to be great? Humble yourself before the living God and let him lift you up in due time. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is deadly dangerous stuff that we're dealing with today. Pride that would leave our knees unbound unbowed before you. Have mercy, Father. Spare us today. Cause us to repent and turn away from our wrongdoing and our stubborn hearts. Father, if our pride has caused us to sin, to abuse, to look down, to speak ill of, Father, we repent and turn from it. Father, for those of us today who feel worthless, lift our eyes up to see you, enthroned, glorious, proclaiming our worth. We pray, Father, that we might model, practice, and follow true humility after our glorious, risen, and raised Jesus. We ask this for his glory and in his name. Amen.